Chapters 46 through 51 of the Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Volume 1. Translated by John Addington Simons. Chapters 46 through 51. 46. I was still working in the shop of Raffaello del Moro. This worthy man had a very beautiful young daughter, with regard to whom he had designs on me, and I, becoming partly aware of his intentions, was very willing. But while indulging such desires, I made no show of them. On the contrary, I was so discreet in my behavior that I made him wonder. It so happened that the poor girl was attacked by a disorder in her right hand, which ate into the two bones belonging to the little finger and the next. Owing to her father's carelessness, she had been treated by an ignorant quack doctor, who predicted that the poor child would be crippled in the whole of her right arm, if even nothing worse should happen. When I noticed the dismay of her father, I begged him not to believe all that this ignorant doctor had said. He replied that he had no acquaintance with physicians or with surgeons, and entreated me, if I knew of one, to bring him to the house. I sent at once for a certain Maestro Giacomo of Perugia, a man of great skill in surgery, who examined the poor girl. She was dreadfully frightened through having gained some inkling of the quack's predictions, whereas my intelligent doctor declared she would suffer nothing of consequence, and would be very well able to use her right hand, also that though the last two fingers must remain somewhat weaker than the others, this would be of no inconvenience at all to her. So he began his treatment, and after a few days, when he was going to extract a portion of the diseased bones, her father called for me, and begged me to be present at the operation. Maestro Giacomo was using some coarse steel instruments, and when I observed that he was making little way, and at the same time was inflicting severe pain on the patient, I begged him to stop and wait half a quarter of an hour for me. I ran into the shop, and made a little scalping iron of steel, extremely thin and curved. It cut like a razor." On my return the surgeon used it, and began to work with so gentle a hand that she felt no pain, and in a short while the operation was over. In consequence of this service, and for other reasons, the worthy man conceived for me as much love, or more, as he had for two male children, and in the meanwhile he attended to the cure of his beautiful young daughter. I was on terms of the closest intimacy with one Messer Giovanni Gatti, who was a clerk of the camera, and a great connoisseur of the arts, although he had no practical acquaintance with any. In his household were a certain Messer Giovanni, a Greek of eminent learning, Master Lodovico of Fano, no less distinguished as a man of letters, Messer Antonio Allegretti, and Messer Annabel Caro, at that time in his early manhood. Messer Bastiano of Venice, a most excellent painter, and I, were admitted to their society, and almost every day we met together in Messer Giovanni's company. Being aware of this intimacy, the worthy goldsmith Raffaello said to Messer Giovanni, "'Good sir, you know me. Now I want to marry my daughter to Benvenuto, and can think of no better intermediary than your worship. So I am come to crave your assistance, and to beg you to name for her such dowry from my estate as you may think suitable.' The light-headed man hardly let my good friend finish what he had to say, before he put in, quite at random, "'Talk no more about it, Raffaello.' you are farther from your object than January from Mulberry's. The poor man, utterly discouraged, looked about at once for another husband for his girl, 
while she and the mother and all the family lived on in a bad humour with me. Since I did not know the real cause of this, I imagined they were paying me with bastard coin for the many kindnesses I had shown them, I conceived the thought of opening a workshop of my own in their neighbourhood. Messer Giovanni told me nothing till the girl was married, which happened in a few months. Meanwhile I laboured assiduously at the work I was doing for the Pope, and also in the service of the Mint, for His Holiness had ordered another coin, of the value of two carlins, on which his own portrait was stamped, while the reverse bore figure of Christ upon the waters, holding out his hand to St. Peter, with this inscription, Quare dubitasti. My design won such applause that a certain secretary of the Pope, a man of the greatest talent, called Il Sanga, was moved to this remark. Your Holiness can boast of having a currency superior to any of the ancients in all their glory. The Pope replied, Benvenuto, for his part, can boast of serving an emperor like me, who is able to discern his merit. I went on at my great piece in gold, showing it frequently to the Pope, who was very eager to see it, and each time expressed greater admiration. 47. My brother at this period was also in Rome, serving Duke Alessandro, on whom the Pope had recently conferred the Duchy of Penna. This prince kept in his service a multitude of soldiers, worthy fellows, brought up to valour in the school of that famous general Giovanni de' Medici, and among these was my brother, whom the duke esteemed as highly as the bravest of them. One day my brother went after dinner to the shop of a man called Bacino della Croce in the Banchi, which all those men-at-arms frequented. He had flung himself upon a settee, and was sleeping. Just then the guard of the Bargello passed by. They were taking to prison a certain Captain Sisti, a Lombard, who had also been a member of Giovanni's troop, but was not in the service of the duke. The captain, Catavanzi degli Strozzi, chanced to be in the same shop, and when Sisti caught sight of him he whispered, I was bringing you those crowns I owed. If you want them, come for them before they go with me to prison. Now Catavanzi had a way of putting his neighbours to the push, not caring to hazard his own person. So finding there around him several young fellows of the highest daring, more eager than apt for so serious an enterprise, he bade them catch up Captain Sisti and get the money from him, and if the guard resisted, overpower the men, provided they had pluck enough to do so. The young men were but four, and all four of them without a beard. The first was called Bertino Aldobrandi, another Anguilato of Lucca. I cannot recall the names of the rest. Bertino had been trained like a pupil by my brother, and my brother felt the most unbounded love for him. So then off dashed the four brave lads, and came up with the guard of the Bargello, upwards of fifty constables counting pikes, arquebuses, and two-handed swords. After a few words they drew their weapons, and the four boys so harried the guard, that if Captain Cadavanzi had but shown his face, without so much as a drawing, they would certainly have put the whole pack to flight. But delay spoiled all, for Bertino received some ugly wounds and fell. At the same time Anguilato was also hit in the right arm and being unable to use his sword, got out of the fray as well as he was able. The others did the same. Bertino Aldebrandi was lifted from the ground seriously injured. Note. The Bargello was the chief constable or sheriff in Italian towns. I shall call him Bargello always in my translation, since any English equivalent would be misleading. He did the rough work of policing the city, and was consequently a mark for all the men of spirit who disliked being kept in order. Giovio, in his life of Cardinal Pompeo Colonna, quite gravely relates how it was the highest ambition of a young Romans of spirit to murder the Bargello. He mentions in particular a certain Pietro Margiano, 
who had acquired great fame and popularity by killing the Bargello of his city, one Senzio, in the Campo di Fiore. This man became an outlaw, and was favorably received by Cardinal Colonna, then at war with Clement the Seventh. 48. While these things were happening, we were all at table, for that morning we had dined more than an hour later than usual. On hearing the commotion, one of the old man's sons, the elder, rose from table to go and look at the scuffle. He was called Giovanni, and I said to him, For heaven's sake don't go. In such matters one is always certain to lose, while there is nothing to be gained. His father spoke to like purpose. Pray, my son, don't go. But the lad, without heeding any one, ran down the stairs. Reaching the banchi, where the great scrimmage was, and seeing Bertino lifted from the ground, he ran towards home, and met my brother Cecchino on the way, who, who asked what was the matter. Though some of the bystanders signed to Giovanni not to tell Cecchino, he cried out like a madman how it was that Bertino Aldebrandi had been killed by the guard. My poor brother gave vent to a bellow which might have been heard ten miles away. Then he turned to Giovanni, Ah, me! But could you tell me which of these men killed him for me? Giovanni said, Yes, that it was a man who had a big two-handed sword, with a blue feather in his bonnet. My poor brother rushed ahead, and having recognized the homicide by those signs, he threw himself with all his dash and spirit into the middle of the band, and before the man could turn on guard, ran him right through the guts, and with the sword's hilt thrust him to the ground. Then he turned upon the rest with such energy and daring, that his one arm was on the point of putting the whole band to flight, had it not been that, while wheeling round to strike an arquebusier, this man fired in self-defence, and hit the brave and fortunate young fellow above the knee of his right leg. While he lay stretched upon the ground, the constable scrambled off in disorder as fast as they were able, lest a pair to my brother should arrive upon the scene. Noticing that the tumult was not subsiding, I too rose from the table, and girding on my sword, for everybody wore one then, I went to the bridge of St. Angelo, where I saw a group of several men assembled. On my coming up and being recognized by some of them, they gave way before me, and showed me what I least of all things wished to see, albeit I made mighty haste to view the sight. On the instant I did not know Cecchino, since he was wearing a different suit of clothes from that in which I had lately seen him. Accordingly he recognized me first, and said, "'Dearest brother, do not be upset by my grave accident. It is only what might be expected in my profession. Get me removed from here at once, for I have but a few hours to live.' They had acquainted me with the whole event while he was speaking, in brief words befitting such occasion. So I answered, Brother, this is the greatest sorrow and the greatest trial that could happen to me in the whole course of my life. But be of good cheer, for before you lose sight of him who did the mischief, you shall see yourself revenged by my hand. Our words on both sides were to the purport, but of the shortest. 49. The guard was now about fifty paces from us, for Mafio, their officer, had made some of them turn back to take up the corporal my brother killed. Accordingly, I quickly traversed that short space, wrapped in my cape, which I had tightened round me, and came up with Mafio, whom I should most certainly have murdered, for there were plenty of people round, and I had wound my way among them. With the rapidity of lightning I had half-drawn my sword from the sheaf, when Berlinguer Berlingieri, a young man of the greatest daring and my good friend, threw himself from behind upon my arms. He had four other fellows of like kidney with him, who cried out to Mafio, Away with you, for this man here alone was killing you. He asked, Who is he? And they said, Own brother to the man you see there. 
Without waiting to hear more, he made haste for Torre di Nona, and they said, Benvenuto, we prevented you against your will, but did it for your own good. Now let us go to succor him who must die shortly. Accordingly, we turned and went back to my brother, whom I had at once conveyed into a house. The doctors who were called in consultation treated him with medicaments, but could not decide to amputate the leg, which might perhaps have saved him. As soon as his wound had been dressed, Duke Alessandro appeared and most affectionately greeted him. My brother had not as yet lost consciousness, so he said to the Duke, My lord, this only grieves me, that your excellency is losing a servant than whom you may perchance to find men more valiant in the profession of arms, but none more lovingly and loyally devoted to your service than I have been. The Duke bade him do all he could to keep alive. For the rest, he well knew him to be a man of worth and courage. He then turned to his attendants, ordering them to see that the brave young fellow wanted for nothing. When he was gone, my brother lost blood so copiously, for nothing could be done to stop it, that he went off his head, and kept raving all the following night, with the exception that once, when they wanted to give him the communion, he said, "'You would have done well to confess me before. Now it is impossible that I should receive the divine sacrament in this already ruined frame. It will be enough if I partake of it by the divine virtue of the eyesight.' whereby it shall be transmitted into my immortal soul, which only prays to him for mercy and forgiveness. Having spoken thus, the host was elated, but he straightway relapsed into the same delirious ravings as before, pouring forth a torrent of the most terrible frenzies and horrible imprecations that the mind of man could imagine, nor did he cease once all that night until the day broke. When the sun appeared above our horizon, he turned to me and said, "'Brother, I do not wish to stay here longer.' for these fellows will end by making me do something tremendous, which may cause them to repent of the annoyance they have given me. Then he kicked out both his legs, the injured limb we had enclosed in a very heavy box, and made as though he would fling it across a horse's back. Turning his face round to me, he called out thrice, Farewell, farewell, and with the last word that most valiant spirit passed away. At the proper hour, toward nightfall, I had him buried with due ceremony in the church of the Florentines, and afterwards I erected to his memory a very handsome monument of marble, upon which I caused trophies and banners to be carved. I must not omit to mention that one of his friends had asked him who was the man that had killed him, and if he could recognize him, to which he answered that he could, and gave his description. My brother indeed attempted to prevent this coming to my ears, but I got it very well impressed upon my mind, as will appear in the sequel. 50. Returning to the monument, I should relate that certain famous men of letters, who knew my brother, composed for me an epitaph, telling me that the noble young man deserved it. The inscription ran thus, Francisco Celino Florentino, qui quod in teneris annis ad ionum, medicum ducum pluris victorius retulit et signifier fruit, facile documentum dedit quante fortitudinis et consili vir futuris erat, ni crudelis fati archbusio transfossis, quinto atelis rostro jaceret, benvenutus frater possuit, abiet dei, twenty-seven May, 1529. He was twenty-five years of age, and since the soldiers called him Cecino del Pifero, his real name being Giovan Freschino Cellini, I wanted to engrave the former, by which he was commonly known, under the armorial bearings of our family. This name I had then cut in fine antique characters, 
all of which were broken save the first and last. I was asked by the learned men who had composed that beautiful epitaph, wherefore I used these broken letters, and my answer was, because the marvellous framework of his body was spoiled and dead, and the reason why the first and last remained entire, was that the first should symbolize the great gift God had given him, namely, of a human soul, inflamed with his divinity, the which hath never broken, while the second represented the glorious renown of his brave actions. The thought gave satisfaction, and several persons have since availed themselves of my device. Close to the name I had the coat of Ussolini carved upon the stone, altering it in some particulars. In Ravenna, which is a most ancient city, there exists Cellini of our name, in the quality of very honourable gentry, who bear a lion rampant oar upon a field of azure, holding a lily gules in his dexter paw, with a label in chief and three little lilies oar. These are the true arms of the Cellini. My father showed me a shield as ours which had the paw only, together with the other bearings, but I should prefer to follow those of the Cellini of Ravenna, which I have described above. Now, to return to what I caused to be engraved upon my brother's tomb, it was the lion's paw, but instead of a lily I made the lion hold an axe, with the field of the scutcheon quartered, and I put the axe in solely that I might not be unmindful to revenge him. 51. I went on applying myself with the utmost diligence upon the gold work for Pope Clement's button. He was very eager to have it, and used to send for me two or three times a week, in order to inspect it and his delight in the work always increased. Often he would rebuke and scold me, as it were, for the great grief in which my brother's loss had plunged me, and one day, observing me more downcast and out of trim than was proper, he cried aloud, Benvenuto, oh, I did not know that you were mad. Have you only just learned that there is no remedy against death? One would think you were trying to run after him. When I left the presence I continued working at the jewel and the dyes, for the mint, but I also took to watching the arquebusier who shot my brother, as though he had been a girl I was in love with. The man had formerly been in the light cavalry, but afterwards had joined the arquebusiers as one of the Bargello's corporals, and what increased my rage was that he had used these boastful words. If it had not been for me who killed that brave young man, the least trifle of delay would have resulted in his putting us all to flight with great disaster." When I saw that the fever caused by always seeing him about was depriving me of sleep and appetite, and was bringing me by degrees to sorry plight, I overcame my repugnance to so low and not quite praiseworthy an enterprise, and made up my mind one evening to rid myself of the torment. The fellow lived in a house near a place called Torre Sanguiga, next door to the lodging of one of the most fashionable courtesans in Rome, named Signora Antea. It had just struck twenty-four, and he was standing at the house-door, with his sword in hand, having risen from supper. With great address I stole up to him, holding a large pistogen dagger, and dealt him a back-handed stroke, with which I meant to cut his head clean off, but as he turned round very suddenly, the blow fell upon the point of his left shoulder and broke the bone. He sprang up, dropped his sword, half-stunned with the great pain, and took to flight. I followed after, and in four steps caught him up when I lifted my dagger above his head, which he was holding very low, and hit him in the back exactly at the juncture of the nape-bone in the neck. The poniard entered this point so deep into the bone, that although I used all my strength to pull it out, I was not able. For just at that moment four soldiers with drawn swords sprang out from Antea's lodging, and obliged me to set hand to my own sword to defend my life. Leaving the poniard, then, I made off, 
and fearing I might be recognized, took refuge in the palace of Duke Alessandro, which was between Piazza Navona and the Rotunda. On my arrival I asked to see the Duke, who told me that, if I was alone, I need only keep quiet and have no further anxiety, but to go on working at the jewel which the Pope had set his heart on, and stay eight days indoors. He gave this advice the more securely, because the soldiers had now arrived who interrupted the completion of my deed. They held the dagger in their hand, and were relating how the matter happened, and the great trouble they had to pull the weapon from the neck and head-bone of the man, whose name they did not know. Just then Giovan Bendini came up, and said to them, "'That poniard is mine, and I lent it to Benvenuto, who was bent on revenging his brother.' The soldiers were profuse in their expressions of regret at having interrupted me, although my vengeance had been amply satisfied. More than eight days elapsed, and the Pope did not send for me according to his custom. Afterwards he summoned me through his chamberlain, the Bolognese nobleman I have already mentioned, who let me, in his own modest manner, understand that his holiness knew all, but was very well inclined toward me, and that I only had to mind my work and keep quiet. When we reached the presence, the Pope cast so menacing a glance towards me that the mere look of his eyes made me tremble. Afterwards, upon examining my work, his countenance cleared, and he began to praise me beyond measure, saying that I had done a vast amount in a short time. Then, looking me straight in the face, he added, Now that you are cured, Benvenuto, take heed how you live. I, who understood his meaning, promised that I would. Immediately upon this I opened a very fine shop in the Banchi, opposite Raffaello, and there I finished the jewel after the lapse of a few months. End of chapters 46 through 51